You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. How many of you here um, have a birthday in December or a birthday in January? How many folks? December birthdays, January birthdays? I ask because... The day after Christmas, I was in the airport, I'm walking through the airport, and you ever hear those like overzealous gate agents? And I wasn't flying Southwest. <laughs> I was flying American, and I heard this gate agent, and she was excited about her job. And I'm at RDU, you know, like those belt line things, if you're really lazy and you want to, or you want to walk really fast without putting all the forward effort, and I'm going through one of those things. The lady says, we got some birthdays today, and I looked over. All right, do you want the church version of what I thought, or do you want what I really thought? <laughs> Real one? All right. Church. Uh, if you don't like this version, you're probably not going to say this church very long anyways. It's fine. Uh, I thought to myself, well, that sucks. What a crappy day to have your birthday. Anybody's birthday actually on December 26th? Anybody? Anybody who had one on the first service? Um, and uh, I thought, you know, if you have your birthday on Christmas, yeah, Jesus is the one getting all the attention. He's the one we're celebrating. His birth was more significant than yours. It's a big deal, Right? But on December 26th, it's worse, right? Because people aren't even celebrating Boxing Day, for real. I'm putting everything away, no celebrating. Oh, by the way, happy birthday. None that, that kind of sucks. But I don't have a birthday in December or January. So I did a little research to see what, what do people say before I talk about that. I don't want to do it. And then everybody's like, I love December. It's awesome. And so I did a little bit of looking, BuzzFeed, Reddit, different places online and looking and seeing what other people say who have this birthday. I saw this meme. I thought this would be appropriate uh, considering the day. Just to be perfectly clear, these gifts are for your birthday and Christmas. <laughs> know, probably said, not recorded in the scriptures, but not everything was written down. And so... If you have a birthday in December, you probably know that people will oftentimes ask you the question, like, I'm in, I'm in October, and so I might ask somebody the question, so do you get two presents? And every time, no, 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 don't do that. It just makes it a little bit worse. Some people try to empathize with you and try to have compassion. Other people make it worse by what they say about it. <laughs> Me today, uh, this guy I saw on Twitter uh, said this, what do you call X now? Is this an X or a tweet? I don't even know how to say. What do you... Here's the, here we go. It's rude to have a December birthday. We're all very tired, and now this. Nice job, you, with your December birthdays. There's one guy I saw, his name is Jay, and uh, Jay, I think, is confused about birthdays in general, or calendars, or something. Uh, I saw this, he said, imagine being born December, you gotta wait a whole year for your birthday. Can some of you later today write to Jay and say, uh, what about October? What about July? And then I thought, there's only one day you don't wait a whole year. If you're born on February 29th, leap year, you wait four years. So how many of you here uh, birthday, January or December? Curious? We'll get one right here in the front. Here we go. I'm going to give you a gift today. How about that for being so zealous there? In fact, all, everybody's hands up again. You're December, January. They're like, oh, now I'm up. Now there are more hands now. <laughs> Lie. Jesus is watching. Just so you all know. Here's the deal. Uh, after the service, we've got gifts for all of you up here today. So you get a gift. You get a gift. You get a gift. Now I know who watches Oprah. There we go. You're judging me. I might as well judge you too. All right. Today, today's your birthday? Boom. Come right now. Trisha, pick whatever you want. Whatever. You can even steal a gift. We'll do it that way. I'm just kidding. You know, but... <laughs> okay, okay. 
Happy birthday, Trisha. We're glad you're here. Uh, if you're watching online, you must be present to collect a prize. <laughs> present for the present. Another one? It's your day today? Are you sure? I don't know. There's popping up more and more. Come on up. Come on up. Grab a thing. Give her a hand. Come on. You got to come forward to get the gift. There you go. Oh, more. Yeah, as you flow. We're just going to freely flow throughout the surf. More. I see. That. Oh, this is like a revival. How about this? People coming forward from everywhere. How about that? My wife has a, a January birthday. In fact, it was this week. Uh, it was Tuesday, uh, January 10th. In fact, fun fact, Southbridge fact, uh, she was born on the same day as our executive pastor, John Cullen, at the same hospital as him. So they were born on January 10th. And I always say to her, I say, what do you want to do for your birthday? What do you think you want? She's like, meh, meh, January birthday. So I said to her this year, I was like, here's the deal. You're past 25, not much, past 25. Like pushing 29 there for a little while. And... Uh, she, I said, you just pick a new day. Your mom's not going to be that offended. And if she is, oh, well, she'll get over it. And no one else is going to know because just change it on Facebook. That's how everybody knows your birthday anyways. And so just switch the profile and you just pick a new day. I said, what about Cinco de Mayo? She didn't like me suggesting a day to pick. Like, I, this is the day I would pick. Uh, but I was like, you like tacos? Everybody's celebrating. They're not really a gift exchange. They'll just give you gifts and be great. We'll eat tacos and have fun. And she's like, I'll think about it. I said, just pick a new one. <laughs> You think about what is it that we love about new? Because humans, we're all naturally gravitating towards new. Uh, marketers use this. They call it the novelty effect. That's why they'll put on products, whether it's a laundry detergent or an iPhone or whatever, new, the new, and sometimes new and improved. In fact, studies have shown, sociologists have found out, that if a product says new, we assume it's improved. Technology's improving, it makes sense, and we're suffering from decision fatigue. We don't want to think about it that much, and so we just assume that it's better. And so we wait in line. You know, Apple hasn't invented anything in like 20 years, but we get the 15th iteration of the same thing, and it's got more pixels. What does that even mean? I don't know. Just buy the new one. We want the new clothes, the new styles, the new car, the new gadgets, the new... Is that wrong? Well, it used to be about 10 years ago that scientists, there were social scientists, and they were studying behavior. More modern research on these types of things has to do with neuroscience, the study of the brain. And what they've actually found is when we interact with something new, it can be a surprise, it can be a product, it can be an experience, lots of things, that a special part of our brain is activated, releases dopamine, a neurotransmitter that communicates to our body that we're experiencing pleasure and reward. Hmm. Interesting. So we're wired to experience the new. The problem with the products and things like that is that's all temporary, and you've got to keep doing it. It's got to keep spinning and keep changing, and at least how you present it and how you package it and the way you say it and how you can surprise somebody with a twist about it. But we have a God who makes all things new. And I want to ask you today, as we open up this passage in Lamentations, if you could change one thing about your life and make it new, what would it be? Maybe it's your birthday, like I suggest to my wife. Maybe you look in the mirror and you realize your face isn't looking younger and younger every day. And so that's why the anti-aging industry is a $64 billion industry. We want new. Maybe it's physical, emotional, spiritual, relational. What if you could change one thing? Maybe it's in a marriage. Maybe it's with your, some planning you have. Things haven't gone. Your, what would you make new? 
And we're going to talk about today how God's mercies renew. Lamentations, we're going to look at some very familiar verses in a very unfamiliar book in an all-too-familiar scenario. For those of you who aren't familiar with the book of Lamentations, let me just start off just giving a little teaching about it because it's so foreign to us, the style of writing. Most of you probably don't do your devotions in this. The verses we're going to look at, probably the only verses most people know from this book, and they seem inspirational. Maybe you've seen them on a poster or a coffee mug. A lot of the other verses in this book, we're never going to make a coffee mug. Where are you, God? I'm so mad. You've got false prophets, blah, 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 blah. Not, probably not making a mug. Make me a mug. Don't do the false prophet one, though, please. <clears throat> The book's called Lamentations because it's a book of lament. Lament is a word that some of you may know. Some of you may just pretend to know it because we're at church. It means to weep. It means to have sorrow, inner grief. The book could be titled The Book of Grief, of Loss, of Sorrow. One person I was reading on this passage said it could be called The Book of Sobbing. I'm not sure that's true because you don't necessarily have to have external crying, but... There's an internal sorrow that's taking place because these are dark days. Historically, what's happening here is the worst that's ever happened in Israel's history. And yes, I mean including the Holocaust, including October 7th. This is worse. These are dark days. Why is this in the Bible? And why would we talk about, don't, I came to get an encouraging word today. Maybe your life's going great and you don't need to think about lament and weeping and sorrow, but maybe one day... You will. And you find out there's a reason why God intentionally puts in his book things like this. Because if you read the Psalms, 30% are clearly Psalms of lament. Like the whole thing is a lament, a sorrow, a weeping, a grieving. But if you look and see the Psalms as a whole, over 70% include lament. It must matter. Jesus lamented. He wept at the funeral of his friend Lazarus. We live in a world of sin and suffering, and so sorrow is a reality. And what you see is that many of the laments are complaints, complaints about other people to God, complaints about God to God. I think one of the reasons why they're in the Bible is so you know that that's okay. And another reason, and one of the unique things the book of Lamentations brings is different than Job, because Job teaches us about suffering and how to suffer biblically and a biblical perspective on suffering, but it's individual. This is corporate. This is a communal suffering, and how do we suffer together? What do we do to evaluate our hearts? What should our thoughts be and emotions to God? I think another reason, it's kind of like why some people will, will cry. It's just to let out the emotion, to get it out. The worst thing you do is keep it in and be isolated and alone with that. And so we're, show, we're being shown here how to do some of this stuff. But it's ugly and it's messy. And the things that are said, some of them are rough. In fact, I know that we're a bunch of Christians, so you guys don't probably get mad at other people. But maybe you've seen me driving and I, the, behind the person in the left lane, you're like, that's my pastor and start praying for me, Okay. I do get angry with other people. So did the psalmist. Here's one about other people. Help, Lord, for no one drives the speed they should. Oh, no, that's what I said. <laughs> for no one is faithful anymore. Really, no one is what I want to say anymore. That's called self-righteousness. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. <laughs> no one. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They flatter with their lips, but they harbor. You think this person was betrayed? They're telling God about it. What about this one? 
Jesus quotes this one when he's on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. Most people would be mad if someone said that in church. It's in the Bible. By night, I find no rest. Can't sleep, maybe panic attacks, anxiety, insomnia. Mm. Interesting thing about the structure of this book is it's five chapters, and they all talk about the same topic, <laughs> but they do it from a different perspective. It's Hebrew poetry, and the way that the poetry is written in the first four chapters is an acrostic. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and you'll find 22 verses in chapters 1, 2, but not chapter 3, where we're going to be. That's the climax. That's the heart of the book. There's 66 verses, because behind each line of the alphabet and the letter, there'll be a stanza of the poem. There's three for every letter in the Hebrew alphabet in chapter 3, and where we're jumping into is the middle. In Hebrew poetry, the center is the climax. And so I want to read it to you. These dark days, difficult things are happening. Chapter 1, crying out, really speaking to the whole city of Jerusalem. Chapter 2, from the Lord's perspective. And chapter 3, it gets real personal. We don't know who wrote this for sure, but most people believe it was Jeremiah, the prophet. And he talks about his own personal struggles, and he's an eyewitness to the things that happened in the city, and then we'll start reading. For the sake of time, I'll start reading in verse 18 to give you some context before we get to the verses you may know already. So I say, after talking about how God has come after him like a hunter, how things are so terrible, how he feels about it, so I say my splendor is gone, and all that I had hoped for from the Lord, my dreams have been shattered. Verse 19, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. You might underline that, bitterness and gall. We'll come back to it later, hopefully. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Oh, that's actually a quote from the Psalms. Maybe the Psalms quoted them. Yet, this I call to mind. Okay, there's a transition. This is the point of climax. This is the place where things change in the book. Yet, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So, this is a book of grieving. What does the New Testament tell us? As New Testament followers of Jesus, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. You may sob, there is sorrow, but you have hope. Not empty wishes. What is this hope based on? Well, that's what we get, the verses that you may know, and we'll focus on today, verses 22 and 23. That's all we'll look at. Because of the Lord's, and then it talks about his character, the Lord's great love, Hesed. We are not consumed. Why? For his compassions never fail. You might know the Revised Standard Version says, His mercies never fail. Verse 23, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. There's a hymn from that little phrase. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. And today we're just going to focus in on those two verses, verses 22 and 23. Verse 22, again, just to drive it home. Because the Lord's great love, this is why there's hope. We're not consumed. Why not? For his compassions, his mercy, same word in Hebrew, but different translations never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Many of you know it just as his mercies are new every morning. Hmm. We'll just focus on these two words, and, and I really prefer that when, when we're going, whether we're doing Bible study or preaching, to focus in on like a phrase or one verse or 
a couple of verses. It's kind of like eating a meal. You know, every meal is not eaten the same. You know, some food you devour, some food you savor. You know, think about the devour meals, right? Do you know? Maybe you have a picture in your mind already. Too close to lunchtime to give you this analogy? I don't know. Ever watch Triple D? How many of you are Triple D guy, Fietti? I'm rolling out. Ever seen that? I'm going on diners, drive-ins and dives. And so he goes to these different places. He finds a burger. It's like the greatest burger you've ever seen, except for the show before and the one after. But it's the best looking. It's like a meatball burger. It's got bacon bits in it. And then triple patties and cheese with chili poured on top. And then a bacon jam on the bun. And he goes to grab it. And have you ever seen him, how he eats it? It's like bigger than his head. But he smashes it together. And he does the hunched. You know, hunched? Arms out, two hands. And you kind of insert a bottom. Put the whole thing. He's like, oh, that's the kind of food you devour. You eat that fast as much as you can get. <laughs> I see one of my friends here that's a foodie. Anybody here have friends that are foodies? You go to a nice restaurant with a foodie. You sit down, and sometimes they bring the plates out. And it looks more like art than food to me. I'm like, I don't know. What am I supposed to do here? You don't do the hunch. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> Take a fork and a small amount. And you're going to savor. You devour one, you savor the other. My wife's a foodie. Sometimes she'll eat the bite, and if she really likes it, she does this thing with her lips sometimes. <laughs> ever do that? Do you ever see other, do anyone, does anyone else do that? Sometimes I'm like, that is weird. What are you doing? And then she'll start to, I don't know if she reads like food blogs or what, but she starts to say things like, oh, it's got this aroma, and then the texture, and then she'll be like, oh, I think it's smooth, and maybe there's some cream, and she's trying to like figure out the ingredients, saffron and cinnamon and honey, and I'm like, I don't know, it's good. <laughs> It's not because she's being pretentious. I know my wife, and some of you foodies might be the same. She wants to remake it when we get home. I'm thankful for that. <laughs> See, when we do a big chunk of scripture, maybe a whole chapter or several chapters, that's like devouring, surveying over what's going on and get it as much as you can. But when you park on a verse or two, it's savoring, smaller bites. And so I'm going to share some things with you that sometimes I don't do when we're going through a passage of Scripture, like, this word means this, and it's not a grammar lesson. I don't want you just to know what the word hesed means. I don't want you just to know that compassion means being moved in the bowels so that you know those things. I want you to take that home so you'll apply it in your own home, that you'll experience it and internalize it, and it'll change you. And what we see here in this familiar verse, let's think about the imagery. This is poetry that's being written. Don't forget that. And the image is of a new morning, the sunrise, sun coming up. And so you think about that. And so what I've done here is taken the characteristics of God and given us our main points of the passage because what's happening is the context is really dark. Familiar verses, unfamiliar book, unfamiliar genre. Unfortunately, because of the human condition and all the suffering in the world, all too familiar scenario. Terrible days are happening here. Darkness. And he talks about a new morning. Every time there's a sunrise, the light pierces the darkness. So the first point is simply this. God pierces our darkness with his relentless love. That's the first characteristic we see in the passage as we start to savor what's happening here. In the Revised Standard Version, the one you might be more familiar with, it seems to be the most popular. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. <laughs> the image here of a new morning is symbolic of God 
piercing the darkness with his light. So just show of hands, how many of you here have ever gotten up early enough to see the sunrise? See that? All right, we're second service. I wasn't sure how many hands we'd see. You all like to sleep in. A lot of you. Uh, some of you, maybe you just are early birds and you do that. Some of you do it to see the sunrise. And maybe it's been on vacation. Maybe it's a daily activity for you. But you know, when you see a sunrise, you're seeing light pierce the darkness. And then it's unique to see something beautiful and, and different every time. It depends on how the clouds are, what the weather's like. But every time, light comes and eliminates darkness. Darkness doesn't overcome the light. Light overcomes the darkness. You don't put a lamp under a bushel. No, light's supposed to shine. Light comes into the world, and God separates the day from the night, and there's light, and then you use this imagery that goes all throughout the Bible. And we think about that, and we think from our perspective, the sunrises we've seen, but have you ever thought about a sunrise from God's perspective? What it's like to come and enter into our darkness? And if you get on Google, you can find satellite sunrises from space and astronauts even that have recorded what it looks like for the sun to come up over a place, but for God's light to pierce into our world. That's what Jesus was doing in the way that John describes it when he talks about Jesus entering the world. In John chapter 1, in verses 4 and 5, in him, talking about Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. These days, I shared with you, are the darkest days in Israel's history. I want you to try and imagine with me for a moment that you've been planning a celebration with some of your friends, whoever your people are that you like to hang out with, your best friends, your sister, brother, siblings, uh, roommates, whoever it is, another couple you all like to hang out with, whoever it is. And you've been talking about this for a couple months. And you're going to, it's here in Raleigh, uh, go to a music festival and a parade in downtown Raleigh, but you live here in North Raleigh, so you're probably going to go out to eat. Maybe Gonza's, that's like a mix of devour and savor. Colombian food, not Mexican food, talk to the owner. And uh, I recommend the El Plantain, El Plantano, I think it's called it. I don't know the language. I just say, give me them with the bananas and meat, and it'll be great. Um, maybe get some donuts afterwards at Sola. Okay, great donut holes over there and dip them in chocolate. And then I would suggest maybe Ubering down to Moore Square. Uh, that way you don't have to mess with parking and you can just get right into the mix of everything. And so imagine that you've done that. It's about 8 o'clock at night. You're with people you love and there's a parade going on. You listen to some music that you enjoy, maybe an acoustic set. And then there's a more electrical type thing going on in another area. You know, sometimes they'll set it up down different streets and different places and you're enjoying it, but then there's a commotion coming, and you're not sure what it is over by that Marbles Museum, that big white church over there, vintage church, gospel preaching place. And then you realize there's a shooting. Somebody's bloody. And then there are a couple explosions, and you don't even know which way to go because you don't know where the attack's coming from, but there's an organized, orchestrated attack of terrorists coming into our city, and you witness 300 people be killed. 40 being taken captive, women being assaulted in the worst way you can imagine. That's what happened on October 7th in Israel. What's happening here? Way worse. For two years, Babylon has sat outside the city gates. The people inside are starving to death. It's so bad, and then I've heard some young kids make noises in here, and what I'm about to say is not to be sensational. It's in the Bible. 
You might want to cover their ears right now. Parents are eating their kids. Dead bodies are laying in the street in dust. Old and young, there's not enough energy, not enough strength to deal with it. So you know that I'm not making this up, and I assume you probably haven't read the book of Lamentations this week. Verse 11 in chapter 1, all her people, talking about the city, groan as they search for bread. They barter their treasures for food to keep themselves alive. Chapter 2, without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. That's Israel. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of daughter Judah. Chapter 2, and verse 20, and this is the passage I said, cover your kids' ears. You might want to do that. Here it is from God's Word. Look, Lord, and consider, whom have you ever treated like this? Should women eat their offspring, the children they have cared for? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. So this is a book of grief. They've lost Everything. The temple's destroyed, every major building's burned, the walls are down, dead bodies are laying in the street, they lost family, they lost homes, they lost loved ones, they lost their dignity. Those who aren't killed, most of them are then taken in captivity. Jeremiah is a contemporary of Daniel. We studied Daniel last year, talked about the exile. This is the battle that took place to overtake Jerusalem. That's what most likely Jeremiah, but whoever wrote Lamentations is talking about these are dark days. And then this verse that we put on a coffee mug, because of the Lord's great love. Great love, great love. What is that great love? Great love is the Hebrew word hesed. It occurs over 250 times in the Old Testament. I took Hebrew when I was in seminary. Now listen, there are pastors in our city uh, they're professors at seminaries around here, and different things like that, and they preach, when they preach the Old Testament, they preach from a Hebrew Bible, and when they preach in the New Testament, they preach from a Greek Bible. I ain't that guy, all right? When I took Hebrew, which was required uh, for the program that I took for seminary, I didn't want to take Hebrew. It's a bunch of symbols you read backwards, or the other way would be the right way to say that, and, and I thought, but I can memorize stuff, so I just cram it in my head real fast, and then get through it, and I took 30 weeks in 10 weeks. <laughs> uh, yeah, don't be excited. I don't remember most of it. I remember the book of Ruth, and I remember the word hesed. Hesed. Didn't learn to speak it, right? Um, because my professor said chesed about nine bazillion blah, 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 times, okay? And what you find out is that that word's translated a lot of different ways in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's translated mercy. Sometimes it's translated grace. Sometimes it's translated love. Often loyal love because it's actually connected to God's covenant. Here's what you need to know about covenant. Covenant is a promise, like a contract, a commitment to you. Uh, there are commitments that God makes that are contingent upon your response to the contract. For instance, here's a promise of God that's conditional. means it only comes true if you do what you're supposed to do. 1 John 1, 9, popular verse. If, if, that's a condition, if you confess your sins, God's faithful and just. The condition is not his faithfulness and justice. He's faithful and just no matter what you do. That's his character, and that's why you can count on him to consistently keep his end of the contract, that if you confess, that's your end, he will cleanse you and purify you and forgive you of all anything that you're 
confessing to him, but you gotta confess. If you don't confess, no forgiveness, no cleansing. But there are other promises that are not conditional. They're solely based on God's character, and God's character doesn't change. And he's got a promise to his covenant people, which includes some, not all, not all ethnic, not all national Israel, but the God-fearers, those who are truly following Yahweh, anticipating a Savior to come. There's covenant people. In the New Testament, those who place their faith in Jesus, you become grafted in children of God. For all who believe, John 1, 12, you have the right to be called children of God. Ephesians chapter 1, you're adopted into God's family. For all those people, you are in Christ, is the way that Paul talks about it in Romans. You can't be separated from his love. It doesn't matter what you do. No matter where you run, Jonah. Adam and Eve in the garden, heard the steps. My God's pursuing. That's why I call this a relentless love. It's a pursuing love, a love that comes after. I hate the NIV translation. The NIV is my favorite translation, but it's so generic the way that they say, great love. Two words that don't mean anything. Love doesn't mean anything to us anymore, but it means so many, many things, it doesn't mean anything. Great, it's like saying the word stuff. What was there? Well, there's some stuff. <laughs> what does that mean? What kind of stuff? Some of you know two languages, or three or five, or whatever. Have you ever translated for somebody? Those of us who don't know multiple languages, and I know when I go somewhere and I'm going to preach in another country and I have a, an interpreter, I, I like sharing the gospel with non-believers. Sometimes hanging out with non-believers is more fun than hanging out with believers because they can be more honest. They don't feel like they have to pretend. And I would love to have a translator that would share the gospel and hear the gospel, but you know what? I want a believer that's a translator because I need them to know the concepts because you know if you know more than one language, whether it's Spanish, Italian, Rome, or Russian, whatever it is, that sometimes there isn't a word for word, but even if a word in one language could be exactly translated to another language, it might not capture the whole concept. And so I want a believer because I want them to, when I say mercy, if they know these people are hearing something different, even if they use the same word, they're going to unpack it. And that's why I, I remember I preached uh, in Greece one time, and I would say like a sentence, and the guy would go for like two minutes. I'm like, I don't know, I hope it's good. I don't know what he's doing over there. <clears throat> Think about how long that message took, by the way, too. Anyway. <laughs> Translators, and they all have a different philosophy, and they'll tell you what it is at the beginning of the Bible, at the beginning of the, the, their Bibles. Um, they're trying to convey what they think is going to communicate to you the essence of the truth that's being said originally to the people. And so, Cassid is so rich and nuanced that sometimes you say mercy, and sometimes you say love, and sometimes you say loyal love, and sometimes you say kindness, and sometimes you say grace, and, and it's all these different words, but then you've got to see the picture. And, and Ruth, that's what I studied for the, those 10 weeks in Hebrew, and what happens is between two people there, there's a situation where there's a famine, so it's dark days there too, and, and this Hebrew family moves, and they go to Moab. Hmm, they worship different gods, and it's a foreign culture, but they want food. And there's this woman, Naomi, and her husband dies, and she says some rough stuff. Now listen, we've got some widows in our church. Some of you might become widows in the future. Don't correct them. Be patient and gracious. Do they mean it? In the moment, they probably know the same truth that you know and want to police. Just give them space. She says some rough stuff. Her husband dies, and 10 years later, her two sons die, seemingly about the same time. And 
She's got these two daughter-in-laws, and she tells the daughter-in-laws, Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah and Ruth, go back, go back to your people. I'm going back to Bethlehem, where I'm from, and there's no hope for me. God's been more bitter to me than he's been to you. In fact, when she gets back to Bethlehem, she says, don't call me Naomi, that word means pleasant. Uh, Call me bitter. Well, that's a bitter woman right there. Just call me bitter. Yeah, we do behind your back, but to your face, okay. (laughs) She's just trying to stop him from slandering and gossiping. It's fine. Um, She's hurting. She's grieving. Orpah goes back. Ruth doesn't. The Bible doesn't say that either one is right and wrong, but it pictures Ruth as Hesed. And she converts from the Moabite gods to the one true God. Listen to her covenant with Naomi in Ruth chapter 1, verse 15. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back. Look at Orpah. You're pretty. You got options, Ruth. Go back. She's already told Ruth, hey, if you need to give them with me, I'm, I'm not having any more kids. And even if I did, you're not going to wait around for one of them. And don't be stuck with me. I've got nothing But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. That's a conversion. Where you die, I will die. Here's the covenant. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me. Here's the seal on the covenant, signing the document. I call God's wrath down on me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Wow. It's like marriage vows. And what you see is in the book, there's a kinsman redeemer. Ruth does remarry. His name is Boaz. And and in showing God's hesed love, as an illustration, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus. And that's who Boaz is. And then at the end of the book, this Moabite woman, Ruth, gives birth to a child, Jesse, who's in the line of David. David will come, and that's the line of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, there's a few women that are mentioned and this Moabite Ruth is one of them. God's Hesed. Pursuing, committed, committed no matter what happens in circumstances, no matter how dark it gets, no matter what you do. Remember, nothing can separate us from God's love when we're one of his people, the commitment that he has to us. Paul says it like this in Romans, I am confident of this, that neither death, nor life, nor circumstances, or angels, or demons, or persecution, or famine, and the list isn't exhaustive, or anything else can separate you from the love of Christ. Amen? So it means no matter what you do, where you go, his love is coming after you. And so I want you to know this. God is coming after you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, he's pursuing you. His light is piercing darkness and coming after you so that you would receive his love. If you have received his love, he keeps coming after you. It's relentless. You ever relentlessly pursued something? A goal, a dream, a person? You see this? Detectives, they won't give up on a case. Romance. Take our own lives, Romeo and Juliet. No matter how many obstacles. Nelson Mandela, imprisonment, wants peace and equal rights. You see it all the time, but those people, they did it for one thing in one moment. God keeps coming for you, not because of you, because of his character. 
And what happens here, this transformation, is not because of the circumstances. It's because of Jeremiah's perspective. You ever seen a picture where it can totally change based on your perspective? Like you can see a picture of me and it looks like I'm trying to smack Jim here in the front. If you Google Earth that thing, 360 turn, and you might see that I'm actually deflecting the guy in the back row that threw a death projectile towards him. In one case, I am a jerk. In another case, I'm a hero. Depends on your perspective. When we wallow in our circumstances, we will focus on the temporary, isolated darkness that we are in. When we change our perspective from the things that we want to change that might not change to the one who never changes, God, you change everything. It's his loving kindness, his hesed that's coming after. It's the hesed that he's showing in the book of Hosea when he tells his prophet Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. Wait, I'm a pastor. Yep, and I want people to see what my hesed is like. And when she goes out and she gets used up by all the different lovers and nobody wants her anymore and she's being sold on the slave labor market, not the sex market, I want you to buy her back. This is how it says it in the book of Hosea. It says, Hosea chapter 3, the Lord said to me, Hosea, go show your love to your wife again. Relentless, keeps going. Though she's loved by another man, been with a lot of men. She is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods, and love the sacred. They trade the God of all satisfaction for raisin cakes. <laughs> so Hosea gives a testimony. I bought, I bought her, his wife. It's our, she's already his. The picture of redemption. The cross, tetelestai, paid in full. It is finished. It means paid in full. Jesus didn't have a debt. He left heaven, came to earth. John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. The God of life is light to all mankind. That whoever would receive him would have eternal life. He did what no one else could do and lived the sinless life. Everyone else has sinned. So when he paid the debt, he's paying, he was your substitute in your place. And, that, and do you know what he's doing? You're already his because he created you, but he's buying you back even though you've had so many other lovers. Hesed. The word hesed is not used, but you're probably familiar with the story of the prodigal son. Jesus talks about how much God loves lost things. He's given these made-up stories, and in one of them, there's a distinguished father who's wealthy, and his son comes to him, spits in his face, Demands his inheritance early. The dad gives it to him. He goes off. Goes all Hunter Biden. Wild living. It's documented. It's not slander. It's documented. Prostitutes and partying and all that stuff. And passage says he comes to himself. There's this realization. He's working to help a pig farmer. He's a Jewish boy. I don't know if you know the Old Testament very well or not. Jews, pigs, they go together. He's working as a pig farmer. How bad does it have to be? And he says to himself, my dad has servants that are better off than I am. And he comes up with a speech he's going to tell his dad. I've sinned against you, against God. Make me like one of your hired servants. 
I don't know if you know the story or not, but listen to what the text says. So he got up and he went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion, mercies, for him. He ran to his son. He ran. He ran. He ran. Like, get that. That's a big deal because distinguished men in the East, we don't know Eastern culture that well, most of us, and so you don't run. Because in order to run means you had to pull up your robe. And pulling up your robe means you show your legs. And to show your legs was an issue of shame. It's an honor-shame culture. You don't do that. So why did he run? He ran. He ran. He ran after his son. Why is he running after his son? Is he just so excited? That's what we want to think in our American culture? No, because there was a custom that a son did what this son did, demanded inheritance, squandered it. When he came back, he was cut off. The dad took shame upon himself and ran to his son. And before he could finish his speech, I have sinned. That's all he gets to say. Embrace and love, and he wants the rest of the community to see too, so you, nothing comes between my love. That's it. Doesn't say the word in that text. It's the New Testament. It's in Greek, but that's the picture. Relentless love pierces our darkness. The other one, and the only other one, We'll come to, but we have to say it if we're in this verse. So we'll be brief, but it's God's mercy. God pierces our darkness with his unlimited, did you notice that? It's unlimited mercies, plural, not just one, compassions in the NIV. Because of the Lord's great love, that's the foundation, we're not consumed. His hesed, mercy, kindness, loyal love based on his character, not our worth. Is it too good to be true? In our world, it's usually then, it is, but no. It is what is true. Is it too good for you? That's complicated. The good news is, it's not based on your worth. It's based on his character. His hesed, we are not consumed for, why? What reason? His mercies never fail. They don't stop. There's no expiration date. It's not like the food in my refrigerator. I pulled out some oatmeal the other day. I had a tree growing in the middle of it. Yep, that's bad. Not God's mercies. They never fail. See, many of you here, I know some of you are retired, some of you are not working age yet, but many of you here, you have a job. Can you imagine if you went to work and you expect maybe you get paid on the 1st and the 15th and the 1st comes and you didn't get paid, but it's like, oh, well, don't worry, we do it in the rear retroactive, you'll get paid on the 15th, the 15th comes, you don't get paid. Most of us want to be paid what we've earned. Some of you are consultants, some of you work daily, hourly. You expect whatever the agreed-upon wage to be given to you. Or, or worse, I have a friend of mine working on the tech team today, traveled with me to Israel back uh, right before COVID. And if you remember what happened with the stock market and all that stuff when COVID hit, he jokingly said to me, my 401k became a 101k. All the numbers are going down. So, can you imagine if you worked 20, 30, 40 years and you were putting money into an investment account and whoever you trusted with that, your employer or financial planner, would take the money out of your salary but didn't actually deposit it. You'd want what you had earned. Not only would you want that, you'd want the interest that money should have earned, right? You see, we all, that's justice. You get what you deserve. We all want justice until justice means we're in trouble. Then we want mercy. Some people simply define mercy as not getting what you deserve. It's more than that. 
Mercy is not only not getting what you deserve, but instead getting blessing. And it's nuanced, and this is why it's a little different than grace. It comes from God's compassion and his kindness. And that's why the NIV chooses the word compassion. And the New Revised Standards, they're trying to get the concept to us. It says mercies. His mercies, his compassions, plural, not just once, not just at the point of salvation. It says in the text, knew every, it could say every breath, but that's a hard image, pretty intense. But instead gives us this light-piercing darkness image of new every morning. His mercies, that's to be moved, and his emotions for you, moved in the bowels, in the womb. It hurts when he sees your pain and he keeps coming with his relentless love, with new mercies, not only not giving you what you deserve, that's why the text says we're not consumed. Listen, it's terrible. Young men, old men, laying in the streets, no one's cleaning up the dead bodies, people are eating their kids, that's awful. But they're not dead. They still have breath. There's still space for mercy. Have you ever experienced mercy? Think about it. From the Lord, ever from another person? I remember when my kids were really small, um, I would tell them before I would discipline them, because you discipline your kids when you love them. What's happening here in this book is some people are experiencing God's wrath, the ones who are not genuine followers of Yahweh. And some are experiencing his discipline, the genuine follower. If you're a follower of Christ, you won't experience, you'll never experience the wrath of God. That was poured out on Jesus at the cross. But you will be disciplined if you're a child of God. You, if you keep openly sinning and then professing Christ and there's no discipline, the Bible is communicating to you, you're not a Christian, no matter what you say. Warning, warning. If you think I'm making this up, Hebrews 12, 5 through 13. Don't have time to read it. He disciplines those he loves. When I would discipline my children, I would get down on my knees, I'd look at them and say, all right, honey, you did wrong, own that, I want you to take accountability for it. Um, I'm gonna discipline you, but you know I love you, right? And I shake their head, yes. And then we discipline them. I go, do you know that I love you? Ah, does it feel like I love you? No, every time. Every kid, didn't matter personality, didn't matter what they did, no, does not feel like you love me. Do I love you? Oh, only because you won't let me out of this conversation until I say yes, so they learned that, and so... I remember one time, uh, one of our daughters, we had caught her doing something wrong. She didn't come confess it. It was clear. My wife and I had a plan. <clears throat> we were going to show mercy. As long as she didn't go really bad when we confronted her. Uh, I remember sitting out on the porch. I not remember what she did, but I remember sitting out on the back porch with her, and the three of us were having a talk, and she admitted what she had done. It was wrong. And I said, all right, honey, here's what we're going to do. Uh, your mom and I have taken work off tomorrow. We're taking you to Carowinds. You ride whatever ride you want whatever you want to eat, we're getting it. Not because we wanted to reward and reinforce the behavior, because we wanted to know mercy. Not always good at it. I remember another time, uh, some of you have heard the story, you've been in our church for a while, my oldest daughter was four, she's 18 now, this is a while ago. Hopefully you've forgotten the story, if not. <laughs> I'm riding in the car, going to South Point Mall, we were in a van, a little minivan at the time, and uh, I pulled up, and there's a guy who's faithfully always at the corner panhandling, begging, and he was standing there, and my four-year-old daughter, Ella, says to me, Daddy, what is that man doing? I said, he's asking for our money that we work for because he's not willing to work. Not the most tender moment I've ever had as a parent. 
You leave that. I looked at the guy and thought, hey, you can walk. I'm sure McDonald's will hire you. Somebody will hire you. I didn't even think about giving him money. We pull into a parking spot. It's been about two minutes. No one said a word in the car. And from the back seat, four-year-old kid, Daddy, what's mercy? Oh, man! <laughs> See, we want what we've earned. The Bible says the wages of sin. What we've earned is death. The very fact that you have breath is evidence of God's mercy. Whether you're a follower of Christ or not, you're alive. That means you have a chance. Can you imagine a scenario where there's a school shooting, maybe Leesville or Trinity, one of the schools around here, and your kid gets killed? You'd never forget the day that you showed up and their friends came out and your kid never came out of the building. Can you imagine sitting in the courtroom for the killer's trial? The judge goes to address the defendant, and the defendant says, I'm guilty, but I throw myself at the mercy of the court. And the judge says, in that case, not only will we withhold punishment, but we want to give you a house and set you up in a place where you can grow and not only have life, but have abundant life. How would you feel? Because that's what we did to Jesus. It's your sin that put him on a cross. See, our problem is we minimize our sin. Now, so there's, it's for the whole world, and there's a lot of bad people, and I'm kind of, maybe I'm complicit. No, your sin. Now, Jesus to the cross. He is your substitute. He's paying your debt. The wages, what you've earned, is death. But the gift, like the people had to come up here and grab these gifts, the gift of God. It's not what you've earned. It's because of his mercy, blessing, favor, eternal life in Christ Jesus. And as long as you're breathing, it is available because he's good. Amen? And if you keep reading the passage, that's what gets emphasized. It's his goodness. It's his goodness that is seen through his mercy. In verse 23, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, verse 24, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I'll wait for him. And then listen to this, verse 25. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. Hope. They started right before verse 22. Now we got hope again. Yeah, they're grieving, but they've got hope. Why? Because of his character, his hesed, his mercy, his goodness to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good. Goodness is being emphasized, but remember it's in the context of darkness. How? Character doesn't change. No matter what's changed in our circumstances, in our world, in our nation, Chapter 4, and I just say this as a warning because we're in an election year. Christians get weird, more weird than everybody else in my opinion, and I'm one of you, just so you know. Um, people will be emailing me about what I need to say about whoever is candidate. Don't do that. I'm not reading those. I'm deleting those, just so you know. Love you. Don't love your emails. <laughs> hate the sinner. Love the sinner. Oh, hate the email. Love the... <laughs> Chapter 4, uh, people are putting their trust in pol political leaders and pastors, and, and they all failed. The prophets, the priests, and the kings, they all failed. There's one perfect prophet, priest, and king. His name is Jesus. Their failure points to the need for Jesus. But because they didn't turn, they ended up in the scenario they were in. Huh. 
But God's still good, and his mercies are still available. But his wrath is real, and I don't want you to miss that. To come into a book like this and not mention it would be um, disservice to you. It's not kosher, cool in the contemporary church to talk about God's wrath. You know, pastors like Joel Osteen is like, just talk about hope. People know they've sinned. You don't have to say sin. Huh. You can't really understand mercy until you know wrath. Wrath is dark. Wrath is coming on the ones here that haven't placed their faith in the coming Messiah. The ones here that haven't placed their faith in Jesus. The New Testament talks about wrath more than the Old Testament does, actually. Uh, a lot of people mistake that when they argue about this. And Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, I'm trying to find in my Bible here. I think we got up on the screen. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. Jeremiah had been warning the Israelites for decades, and they imprisoned him and instead chose to listen to false prophets who told them there was hope. And he says, they say hope, hope. There's no hope. You don't turn. And in Lamentations, he says, those false prophets didn't get you to deal with your sin. And so here we are. The New Testament says this, this righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's the reason why people don't want to talk about wrath, because they think about man's wrath, and they equate that to what God does. It's not the same. Read Webster's Dictionary, dictionary dictionary.com. They'll give you a definition of man's wrath, and the idea is that I've gotten so upset, I'm now going to seek vengeance. Coming after you, you've hurt me, I'm going to hurt you as much as I can. No, It says right here what God's wrath is, is justice. You wanted what you earned, and you didn't want him. You didn't receive the gift. The wages of your sin is death. You're getting what you've earned. If there wasn't wrath, he wouldn't be just. And if he's not just, you can't trust him. We mistake how his wrath comes. We always think of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's not what happened in Lamentations. That's not what happens in Romans. In Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. One of the examples he gives is homosexuality. Doesn't matter what you say about it. Doesn't matter what I say about it. Here's what the Bible says about it. Because of this, God gave them over, because of their wickedness, they traded the truth of God for a lie, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women, that's how you were made, and were inflamed with lust for one another, other men. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So the Bible's saying it's sin. Again, it doesn't matter what you say, doesn't matter what I say, doesn't matter what anybody else says, God said. But before you run out, if you have a child that you want to confront with this or somebody you know that's living a homosexual lifestyle, that's definitely sin. But don't miss the rest of the passage. Furthermore, verse 28, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them, his wrath is that he lets them believe to continue to live in darkness. Continue to believe what you want to believe. God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. And then here's the list. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy. Anyone here ever envied? Murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Oh, there's some technology. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, and the last one, no mercy. So he equates mercy with homosexuality? 
not having mercy is like slander and murder? Before we confront the homosexual, we're going to deal with the speck. Do you know his mercy? It's coming after you. God's coming after you with his hesed love to promote mercy, and mercy renews and can renew every area of your life. And as long as you have breath, there's an opportunity. I was talking with a couple last night. We talked about this book being a book of mourning. They're a couple in mourning, Caleb and Kathleen Fletcher. You may know them or their kids if you serve in Bridge Kids. They've got two kids over there. Uh, they're mourning because Kathleen's grandmother, 96 years old, took a fall. That's how sometimes I get sad when you're an older person. If you're 26 years old and you fall down, uh, you get embarrassed. If you're 96 years old and you fall down, it can be tragic. And in her case, last Saturday when she fell down, the doctor said oh, this might be fatal. 96 years old, you break some bones, it's hard to recover. And sometimes the body doesn't recover. And so she was in the hospital for days. And here's the really sad part, not a follower of Jesus. A bigger context is that Kurt, Kathleen's dad, about 30 years ago, was living in New York City and driving to work, oftentimes in New Jersey, and he had a coworker he'd ride with, this guy named Rick. Rick was one of those obnoxious Christians. He's always talking about Jesus <laughs> because he'd been so spiritually transformed it overflowed out of his life. And so he was talking about a God who pursues and God's love, and that while our sin deserves punishment, that Jesus took that punishment at the cross as our substitute and even said, Father, forgive them. They don't know, but they've got to receive the forgiveness. And, and Kurt went home one day and told his wife, I think I need what he's talking about. Let's go to church. And there he heard the pastor say the same thing, and he received Jesus Christ as a Savior. God rescued him, changed him eventually led his wife to Jesus and led his kids, including Kathleen, who's a member of our church, to Jesus. And his extended family, though, mom, dad, and sister specifically, then they weren't real receptive to that news. And so they had their way of doing life, and even the sister didn't want to talk about those things. And she died a few years ago. We know what the Bible says about that. Could she have heard the gospel? I don't know. Every funeral you go to, somebody says people are in a better place. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the path to destruction is wide and that God's wrath ultimately ends up in what the Bible calls a lake of fire, of constant torment because God's grace and his mercy, it's all been removed. And you wanted what you deserved and what you deserve is you sinned against an infinite God and now you have eternal damnation. That's what the Bible says. But God's patient. He doesn't want that for anyone. He wants people to repent. And I was talking to Kathleen last night about her grandmother falling, 96 years old. So she'd heard the gospel. Parents had shared it with her a bunch of times throughout the years. She'd even been to Southbridge. Back when we were at the movie theater, she'd been to Southbridge. And uh, in 2019, right before COVID, one of the Fletcher's kids got baptized here, right here, right here in that baptismal. And the grandma was there. Grandma would come. She didn't complain about it. And even when COVID happened, church was online. They noticed that she'd put her hearing aids in. <laughs> so listening to something, but hadn't trusted Christ. It's possible to be around Jesus and not be in Christ and not have Christ in you. 
the family was concerned, but God, this past week, had been bringing these Christians, like, weird, random people. One person they met in 2019 asked, can I come and pray over your grandmother? Did, prayed over grandma. Can I sing over? And they expected him to sing a hymn. Instead, he started just singing words that he made up about her life, and then truth from God's word, and he's singing it over her, and she's in and out of consciousness, and they bring nurses, and then nurses' assistants, and sitters that would come, and watch us being believers that were there, and And then they had to hand her over to hospice because they knew it was her last days. And we were talking about that last night. And our phone call got disconnected while we were talking. And she texted me and she said, uh, when we got disconnected, my dad called. And he said that my grandma passed away. But when you move from being in the hospital to going to hospice, they give a person's personal possessions to you. And, and they had done that for Kathleen's grandmother. And when they were going through the possessions, they found this little napkin that was stuffed in there, and we got a picture of it. It's a good day. I was able to speak with your mother. This is written to Kathleen's dad. She said that she had accepted Christ as her Savior. She didn't hold a full conversation, but said she was saved. I hope this offers some level of peace, and I think it's very shrewd. They didn't put their name, just in case you're mad about this. <laughs> but hopefully you rejoice. Because you know what? All of heaven rejoices. 96 years of resisting Jesus. But still at breath. There's still a chance. I don't know how many days you have left. 10, 10,000, 100,000. I don't know. I don't know when Jesus is going to come back. I don't know what's going to happen after we leave this place. But his mercies are available. I don't know the darkness in your life. I asked you at the beginning of the service, what would you change? Maybe your birthday, like my wife. Maybe physical, maybe emotional, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's spiritual. I know that if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, that's what he wants to change about you, and he keeps coming, and he'll keep coming until you don't have a chance anymore, or until you trust him. You want to trust him if you don't know him? You don't have to be present. You can be online to get a prize, to get a gift, but you have to come receive the gift. The wage is what you've earned, Separation from God. But the gift through Christ's death on the cross is eternal life. If you confess your sins, he'll forgive you of your sins, cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You don't have to clean up your act first. You don't have to become a better person. You don't have to attend church a certain amount of times, cut some bad habit. Call on Jesus. He's faithful. He's just. He will forgive you. The Bible says if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will become a child of God. You'll be rescued from your darkness. You will be made new. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. If that's you and you, God's speaking to your heart right now and you need to trust Jesus as your Savior in your own words, just acknowledge your need for him, your sin. One commentator on the book of Lamentations said, the interesting thing about this is the way people respond to what Jeremiah says. Verses 22 and 23 will determine how long they're in their misery. Mm. You sick and tired of being sick and tired? Come to me, Jesus says. All who are burdened, and I'll give you rest. He is good. Even if the circumstances don't change, your life can. Turn to him. Receive his forgiveness. Call upon him to be Savior. Some of you know him as Savior. You need renewal. He offers that too. His mercies are new, not just every morning, every moment, every millisecond. You get out of step with the Spirit, get back in step. Renew 
the joy of our salvation. David, my bones wasted away as I hid my sin. Renew our strength. Keep pursuing us with your hesed love, your unlimited mercies, your unfathomable goodness. Cleanse, change, transform. Lord, I have hundreds, thousands of conversations in this moment. Things I couldn't even pray. Just know that my heart is moaning and groaning to you on behalf of each of these people, and you call out to him about whatever it is you want changed. And maybe he won't change the external, but I know that he wants to change all things new in you. New mind, new heart, new eyes. Let the light come in. When the eyes are good, what's your perspective? Eyes on Jesus. Lord, do that in our hearts. I'm going to say amen in a moment. It doesn't mean you have to stop praying. And even if you do stand and sing, heart and spirit of prayer. Amen. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.